And welcome back to Lily High on Life. Thank you for joining us. And today we really have an extra special guest who is the epitome of what Lily High on Life is really all about. It's not what happens to you in your life. It's how you choose you're going to deal with it. And our special guest today is Minna Lederberger. Minna, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Minna, let's start. Tell the listeners what it was that happened to you that absolutely threw your life off kilter. In December of 2012, my daughter Dahlia had graduated Bethrifka Ladies College, and I thought it would be a nice idea for the family to take a little holiday before she went on her gap year to Israel at the end of December. And day two into our holiday up in Tweed Heads, something got me, don't know what, and I ended up in intensive care on life support, fighting for my life. And the doctors actually told your family that you may not survive. Yeah, it was uh, day two or three when the doctors said to my family, I think you really need to prepare yourself because things don't look good. And it's probable that she will pass and you need to prepare yourself. And the listeners need to know that you had a very normal life. You're married, two children, just going on holiday before your kids went out into the world and you got this um, this this terrible news from, from your doctors. But that's not where it stopped. It's not that you just survived. Well, you're right. I mean, I was healthy before we went on this holiday. There was nothing holding us back. I had worked a full schedule before we left. Um, I remember saying goodbye to my girlfriends at Shul on Shabbos morning because we left on a Sunday. And everything changed two days later. And um, subsequently, the doctors uh, diagnosed me with something called HLH, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. For all your listeners out there, you can Google it. <laughs> HLH is fine. You don't Whole have to new language it. you learned. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, at the same time, I had a streptococcal A infection and toxic shock, and, and that's what took me to life support and, yeah, fighting for my own life. And then... It's not that you just got better, but you also had a double amputation of your legs. That's right. So while I was fighting for my life um, with HLH, your immune system is attacking itself. Um, and so they had to shut it down and restart it again. And along with the um, streptococcal A infection, toxic shock, my legs went gangrenous. And um, when I came out of my coma, they were not salvageable. And so in January of 2013, it was actually Australia Day, um, I had both my legs amputated below the knee. So this was six years ago, and you had lots of choices that I'm sure went through your mind. Actually, I didn't really think about any choices. Um, I remember telling the doctor, the vascular surgeon, when he came into the room after I came out of my coma and he gave me the news that I would have to have my legs amputated. I kind of said no, and he was thinking, oh, she's in denial, and I, he said, pardon, and I said, I have to dance at my daughter's wedding, and he said to me, oh, is she engaged? And I said, no, she's not engaged, but she will get engaged, and she will get married, and I have to dance at her wedding, <laughs> and he said, don't worry, you will, um, and so... I was in rehab for uh, a month or so. I did not go home 
with prosthetic legs. I went home in a wheelchair. And in March of 2013, I stood up for the first time on prosthetic legs. And I haven't stopped. (laughs) And how amazing and wonderful that that was your impetus to keep going. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, and um, I'm, you know, part of a large community where I try to help out where I can. And it never dawned on me for a second to kind of stay in bed and woe is me and feel bad for myself. Just none of those thoughts ever crossed my mind. And that's why you are indeed the epitome (laughs) of it's not what happens to you. It's how you choose to deal with it. And it's an enormous thing to deal with. But today, and we spent a little bit of time earlier in the week, it's, it's not about you, the fact that you're a double amputee is not who you are and doesn't define you not at, all. at all. Not at all. And your parents were Holocaust survivors. Yes, they were. And you said you never heard them complain or kvetch about... Mm, never at all. Never at all. The, my parents met in the UK in 1946. They got married at Stamford Hill Synagogue. And I actually have their wedding photo on my wall. And when I pass it and I look at it and I see these two beautiful beaming faces and I think to myself, they've lost their families, you know, they've lost their homes, they're, they're you know, making a go, but they're happy. Uh, both my parents worked six days a week. My dad was a baker by trade. My mom, a nurse. They worked very hard and I never heard them complain, ever. And you had a, a happy childhood in terms of you grew up in an atmosphere that was um, that was more positive than negative. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the whole idea of accepting the things that you cannot change is really important to moving forward. And so, you know, in life, you know, when you have medical circumstances that kind of rule what's going to happen to you, if you don't accept them, you're never going to move forward. So if you accept that, you know, life will be different now, doesn't mean that it'll be hard. I mean, it can be uncomfortable or it can be hard. But for me, it's just different. And I just kind of roll, you know, with the way it is. God gives you lemons, you make lemonade kind of thing. And and that's really what the choice is. Are you going to roll with it and be happy or you know what's more important to be happy or to be right absolutely absolutely and there did your parents actually talk to you um about what they had went through in the holocaust or was that a subject that was not so it was a bit of a taboo subject in the household when i was in university i took a a class by a woman named yaffa eliach she wrote a book hasidic tales of the holocaust and one of our projects was to interview either a liberator or a survivor and i do have you know that on cassette tape i interviewed my dad Um, And that was enlightening, you know, to say the least, you know, learn things that I didn't know before. My mother was much more hesitant about revealing, you know, what happened to her. She had left her home um, to get to the UK. At the time, she was too old to go on the kinder transport, but one of her sisters was there and found her a job. England had a nursing shortage during the war, and so she was able to train to be a nurse, but not be able to nurse English soldiers because she was an alien, a German alien nurse. And that's how she became a nurse. She didn't really have a choice in what career path she was going to take. Um, And 
with um, with that as well, and um, and the environment that you grew up in, that has a lot to do with the way that you see the world and that you um, participate today. It seems to me. Cause, I think so. You know, yeah. I'm, or I've always been a you know a glass half full as opposed to empty. So. You know, there's something else uh, before we go back to your mother, which I do want to do. Um, but there was something else that is. Um, a um, that something else that was uh, interesting to me. Um, you are an Orthodox Jewish woman. You were raised that way, and you always have been. Right. But you were also telling me that there are different. Um, I don't like to use the word sects, but they are sects of Judaism. There's um, Chabad, and there's Adas, and there's Mizrahi, and you've kind of interplayed in all of those a little bit could you just expand on what those the differences are and or what you found sure look i um i don't like to use the term orthodox i prefer to use torah observant i think that's a, a good description and all the different denominations that live here in melbourne um, who are Torah observant observe the same torah um, everybody does things a little bit different um you know, when we look back in the Bible and we hear about Jacob and his 12 sons, they all live different kinds of lives. And I think that's how God intended it to be, that we're all different and we all live a different kind of life. But as long as we're all true to the Torah of which God gave us, then then that's all beautiful. So what you're saying is that the differences are actually in some of the uh, practices that yes, are just done exactly. differently. Exactly. And what about attitudes to each other about um, Adas attitudes to um well I've only seen the good side of everything so I might not be the person to ask I came here my um, in-laws were part of the Adas community and I was welcomed with open arms um, my husband is a yeshiva boy my son went to yeshiva my daughter's a Beth Rifka girl um, we've had ha- our feet in, in the Kolobes Talmud in Mizrahi I mean we're we're part of every community and I think that's a real bonus to, to live in, in the Melbourne. secular community Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Um, I had a core group of about 10 of us girls, and we went through high school together, and you know, I guess songs that made an impact you know, on us growing up, and you know, we just felt that we could do anything, conquer the world. That's how we were in our youth, weren't we? I love that. And so you are from the United States, right. New York? Originally from Brooklyn, New York, yes. And um, so tell us a little about how you met your husband and how you ended up here. Sure. So um, we got married, quotation, open quotation marks, a little bit later on in life, especially for the, you know, kind of communities that I came from and my husband came from. I was 27. My husband was 32. He used to go to New York a lot. He had a lot of relatives there. And you know, we spoke about divine providence, and I'm a big believer in that. And it just so happened. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it just so happened to be that a good girlfriend of mine lived next door to his cousin, who he was at one day, and she had come over to chat or borrow a cup of sugar or whatever. And uh, they got to talking, and he was single, and oh, I have a single girlfriend. And seven weeks later, we we're engaged. So I love that. And first marriage for both of you. Yes. And at this so-called later age. Yes. But uh, it it very obviously worked out. But it took you uh, away from all your friends who 
And I want to explore later on the friendship things sure. because it's uh, relationships and friendships are so important. But you severed, not severed, but you left all of that to come to Australia. What was that like in the beginning? Right. So in the beginning, it was really difficult. Kudos to my parents who never said, no, don't leave us. Don't go. <laughs> they really wanted me to marry, obviously, and be happy. And if that took me to the other side of the world, so be it. Um, it was very hard leaving my friends more than my family. And that was something that was really hard in the first year. I remember um, we lived in a flat on the corner of Glen Ira Road and Elizabeth Street. And I was absolutely thrilled to have a post box right out the door. because I, I lived just, in those oh, flats when we first came to Australia. <laughs> I was just wow. thrilled that I could just walk out the door and post a letter. You That's know. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in those days, of course, you've got to remind people that we didn't have the community communications we have today um phone calls were terribly i mean they were really expensive they were really expensive and i remember in those days we used to have quarterly statements and when we got the first quarterly statement my husband said to me you know you could have booked a flight (laughs) (laughs) instead of making all these phone calls Um, but i have to say that the communities here really embraced me and i'm really grateful for those early you know love and support that i got from everyone so people were very supportive very very much supportive and we were constantly invited out and you know it was lovely it really was and I've made some really good friends here like really good friends there are really really good people here in Melbourne as there are everywhere in the world and your friends but I think Melbourne in particular is an extremely hospitable community you speak to people who travel over the world and everyone will say you know especially if men go to shul on Shabbos you know someone always invites a new person home regardless if they know him or not and you don't get that everywhere so Mm. Melbourne is unique hospitable I think that's really great and so you lost your dad uh, quite a while ago and your mum was on her own for very many years tell me again a little bit about um, how you finally got your mother here and what that was like right so after my dad passed away I have a brother who lives in Elizabeth New Jersey and she often went there to spend Shabbat Um, and then there came a time when she wasn't quite well but all through the years every you know every Sunday morning here, Saturday night in New York, we would speak and I'd always end the conversation the same way. Hey, Ma, don't you think it's time you moved to Australia? And it was always no. And then at one point, I made that phone call waiting to hear the same no. And I actually got a yes. And I was so shocked. I said, Okay, great. I'm I'm on the next plane out. (laughs) And I did. Um, My brother who lives in Israel met me in New York. My mother had been unwell. Um, and she was in a good space. And within a week, we had gotten her an emergency passport. We packed up whatever clothing she needed, and she came to Australia and lived with me. I love that story so, so much because how we take care of our parents is so important, but everybody has to live their own life. So once she got here and once you had her here, you were able to really improve her health and quality of life. Absolutely. Look, she was in a bad place and um, it was an honor and a privilege, you know, to be able to do that for her. 
When she came to Australia, I was um, working for a cardiothoracic surgeon, and at the time, I had a lot of connections at the Alfred and with cardiologists, and I had an appointment with one cardiologist who looked at her and then looked at me and said, how did they let her get this bad? And he was so disappointed in the healthcare system in, in America. And eventually he stripped her off of all her medications, restarted them again, and she lived a really happy life here in Australia. She loved going for walks out the back door, and she would sit in the sun on Hotham Street on the corner. A lot of people used to see her there and knew it was my mom. And she just loved the, the hive of activity of my children and their friends coming and going, being in the pool. Um, I think she wished she would have done it a lot sooner. And is there anything that feels better than knowing that a parent is well and happy? Absolutely. It's the most amazing feeling. I remember once my mother remarked to me, because there were times when I would have to take her to the doctor, and I'd say, you know, something's not right. And, and, you know, we'd get back in the car after seeing the doctor, and she said, how do you always know? You know, and I guess, you know, that kind of intuition, you know, hopefully, you know, a lot of people have it. I don't know if daughters have it with their moms or, or just in general, but, yeah, it was a real privilege. And, Minna, because there are in my case, so many of us who want, you know, Biza Hinton and Svonsik and yes. some of like, Could you talk a little bit about what it was like when your mother did pass and it was all so good before that, but still it doesn't matter what age yes. or when. Look, losing a parent, uh, losing a surviving parent is even harder because then you become an orphan, so to speak. Um, I remember when my dad passed away, my brother from Israel was able to get to um, New York to sit with to sit Shiva with my mother and my brother, and I was sitting all the way in Australia all by myself, and that was really, really hard. And then when my mother passed away, we all sat separately, which was even harder because none of us could support each other except by phone calls. Um, and it was a real loss in the home because she and was a quiet woman, but she had a vibrancy about her. And what did it teach you? What did you, how did you come to terms with that loss? I think in general, you know, the feelings of um, heartache do, you know, test the passage of time. So when people say, oh, it just takes time, it just takes time, they're right. You know, you walk around with this little idea of, um, you know, um, Charlie, you know, with the dog Snoopy, and he has this little rain cloud over his head, and you walk around like that for like six months, and then one day the cloud is gone. But one of the first things I did is take a picture of my parents that I had from our wedding album, and I put it on the wall, because this way I felt that wherever whenever something happens in our home that they're a part of it, whether it's happy or sad, and thankfully mostly happy. So, And how did your children deal with it? They were terrific. I, I know that somewhere along the way my daughter wrote a poem, and I know I have it somewhere. I haven't dug it out for a while, but um, again, they accepted that she her last years of life in Melbourne were probably some of the happiest ones that she had spent, and they were able to forge amazing relationships with her that they hadn't had an opportunity when she was living in New York. So, yeah, they dealt okay. And do you and and do you feel there was also um, something to do with your faith and your belief um, in Hashem that also helped you? 
process it and deal with it? Look, um, you know, my belief system and my um, attitude of observance has everything to do with how I live my life. And we're put on this earth for a certain period of time. Perhaps it depends on the mission that we're supposed to be doing here. And then when you've done your mission, God calls you back. And that's how I like to look at it. So Very nice. And it is a good way to do to deal with it, just to have faith that things will work out and things do work out for the best in the end. I think it's it's a one of the things that you have to learn, whether you go through any kind of trauma in life, whether it's physical, financial, emotional, is that God really is involved in the big things and the little things in life. And sometimes you really have to throw it upstairs. And, and I do that a lot. I do throw things upstairs to him, those things that I really realize I have no, absolute no control over. And yeah. I'm still very close with a lot of those girls. And two of my primary school friends came to my daughter's wedding when she got married in 2015. And it was extremely special. So, so nice. Um, tell me, and you know, there's nothing like the feeling, especially at a simcha, like a wedding, where you really are with people who have known you and who you know only want the best for you in life. That's Absolutely. And it was especially, um, it was really special. Um, A lot of the people from both sides, uh, my daughter married Aaron Goodhart, and the wedding was on a beautiful summer day in December of 2015. And it was the first time I actually walked without my walking stick as my husband and I walked my daughter down to Chuppah. And it was, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was so emotional. It was amazing. I love that. I'm tearing up (laughs) as we talk. And just, you know, I've got a very close friend who's a musician who wrote an amazing song called Family of the People That You Choose to Love. Absolutely. And um, I've got to find it because it was never, it was recorded once, but Mm. never really played, but absolutely fabulous song still today and um, yes what you just said about walking your daughter down the aisle to her wedding and I'm assuming you danced at her wedding. I did, I did, I did without my stick. (laughs) (laughs) So Minna talk to me a little bit about uh, what it was like as you were recovering and after the amputation because I'm sure you went through some tough times as well in your head, but you obviously didn't let them overcome you. And also I'm asking in the context of your personal emotional journey, but also because we're reading so much about depression and suicide, even in the community with young people. So it's important to understand how you um, have been through something that could have really being suicidal for someone else how you went through it i feel really blessed that um i didn't have a lot of issues that some amputees face um something like phantom pain which can drive you around the bend and extremely painful so i feel really blessed that i don't and didn't have to deal with that um i remember a friend of mine who i used to sit next to in shul she's a psychologist her name is sue lewis she used to live here and she made aliyah and I remember her coming to see me in rehab. And, and one of the things she said to me is, you know, Minna, you've gone through some other medical challenges. And um, I think those were setting you up for the big one uh, <laughs> on how you will deal with this. And I have to say that often when you're going through a challenge, you don't straight away react to what's happening to you. It's only later that you might 
you know, deal with things that you find challenging. And so that happened to me just recently, seven, nearly seven years later. My daughter, Dahlia, had a little baby girl named Liel in July of this year. Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> and I traveled to Jerusalem by myself. Um, and um, my machatainister, Sharon Goodhart, and I shared a, a flat together. And um, there were a couple of days when um, I had to navigate buses and difficult uh, terrain, sidewalks and, and footpaths and, and that kind of stuff. And I remember there was one night where I bawled. I really cried out, you know. I was saying, I can't believe this is so hard for me. And it was really the first time, I think, in wow. six years that I really had a good cry about it. Maybe I was due. Maybe it was time <laughs> to, to process that. And I, I think it's really important to cry and to give vent to feelings and emotions, not to bottle things up inside, and for people to have someone that they can talk to. I mean... It's really hard for someone who's not an amputee to actually understand what an amputee is going through. Yeah. And also with the way that you dealt with it, you're absolutely allowed to cry whenever (laughs) you feel like it. But um, at the same time, you know better than anybody the strength and what you did so well to get you to this stage. Yeah, look, I think I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes to be constantly moving around. And I remember when I got home, and still in my wheelchair, an occupational therapist would come to the house every day and he'd say, okay, this week I'd like you to try making a scrambled egg. And then he left. And I said, okay, let's go make a scrambled egg. <laughs> I'm not one to, you know, leave airtime, you know. You just yeah. got to jump in and do, do what it. you can. And, yeah. you know, I really believe that that there are simple things. When you're feeling really down, it really is enough to just say to yourself, what do I need to do? to feel just a little bit better not to feel fantastic but what do i need to do it distracts the brain into a place where where you ha- it will think of something because it's been given that direction so even little things absolutely and i think one of the things that i talk to um, fellow amputees about is celebrating every little new window that you've managed to open that you couldn't open before And that happened to me when I was in rehab. After a shower, I'd go to my bed, and I had by my bedside table a little bottle of uh, green tea that I like to spray on. It was a summer. It's a nice, fresh scent. And I was so debilitated by everything that happened to me that I actually couldn't push the little button down to spray it. And I would try it every morning, and I couldn't do it, so I couldn't do it. And then one morning, I could do it, and that was a huge celebration. And so I think amputees and anybody who's in a situation where they're trying to do things and can't do them, don't look at it as a forever thing. You might not be able to do it today, but you know you might be able to do it tomorrow. And so don't give up. Just keep trying. And if you can't do it the conventional way, find another way to do it. But you will be able to do it if you really want to. And the other really important thing for people to know is that you are leading a perfectly normal life that anybody else leads. You look after a household. You have additional people into your house. Mm-hmm. You also give back. You do... Um, uh, non-profit work and you also uh, well you tell us about <laughs> <laughs> well I wanted to I really wanted to give back to the community because every member of all the different communities were extremely helpful to my family while I was 
out of the home, which was probably about four months, um, and leading up to Pesach. So that yes, was what were these? Talk about the different communities. All the different of. communities, um, as I said before, the Adas community, the Kolobesa Talmud, the Yeshiva Beth Rivka community, the Mizrahi community. I work. Um, I don't work. I volunteer as an education guide at the Jewish Museum, another community that I'm a part of. And everybody and Beit Raphael, um, who started doing Shabbat boxes, delivering of Shabbat boxes, not long after I got ill, Adina and Shimon Allen, two of the most unbelievable people on the face of this earth, who have done the most selfless thing, um, have purchased apartments near some of the major hospitals for families to stay in, fully stocked with everything you could possibly need for Shabbos so that they can be close to their loved ones. And also the Shabbat boxes being delivered to major hospitals and rehabilitation centers around Melbourne for the Jewish patients in hospitals to know that they're not forgotten. They include a little bottle of grape juice, some little electronic Shabbat candles, a bit of a challah roll and some cake. And the faces of the patients just absolutely Absolutely light up when they receive these boxes and usually the first question is how do you know I'm here even and they're just so happy and it just brings them a little bit of levity for the day and the other thing I really wanted to do was give back to the amputee community because we're really a little community on our own and as I said before other amputees you know need to support each other and while you're a patient, you have physiotherapists, occupational therapists, rehabilitation physicians, allied health professionals all working with you, but none of them are amputees. So they might be able to tell you anecdotally some of the things that they're, you know, they've heard before, but they're not going through them themselves. And so Gabby Sarshalam, who's the pastoral care coordinator over at Caulfield Hospital, knew I was doing the Shabbat boxes. She offered that I take their pastoral care um, course, which I did. And now I spend every Monday afternoon at Caulfield Hospital outside the amputee clinic chatting with patients and then going on to the same rehabilitation ward that I was in um, six years ago and meeting patients and, and just answering their questions. I can't even imagine the joy that would give you immense joy i feel i find it really fulfilling really fulfilling and i was a little i want to say shocked but surprised when you told me that not only are there amputees for their legs but there are some amputees that upper are limbs, that, yeah. that upper limbs yes they are are amputated as well yes and to yeah. continue they, they, I'm in awe of them. I really am. Um, you know, we only use our legs for walking, but your hands, they're pretty critical to, to being able to be an independent person. And to lose both yeah. at an older age, yeah. you know, it's yeah. just mind-boggling. Um, you were absolutely... <laughs> you also... Um, uh, went through some black humor. <laughs> we did. We did go through some black humor. Um, I remember my children and I joked about how traveling in economy class would be easier because you could take your legs and stow them in the overhead <laughs> compartment, <laughs> have a little bit extra leg room, so to speak. So when you get to that stage, you really know that you're dealing with Absolutely. it okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just so important. I have to say that without feeling God on my shoulder, I don't know how I would have gotten through it. And, you know, for me, it's all about God. You know, for other people, it might be the universe. I don't know what they believe in, but I really felt him there. And he was really holding on to me and lifting me up. And, um, Minna, I'd like to talk a little bit about about the friendships you talked about and alluded to, because 
as you go through life, that really is the most important thing is the relationships you have either within your family or with other people. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how these wonderful communities came in and helped you? And then we'll sort of go on Absolutely. to your, your um, friends. Look, um, my my friendships here in Australia um, everyone knows me as Middle Letterberger as opposed to who I was um, before I got here. And um, my first um, uh, invitations were from the Adas community. That's the first community that kind of welcomed me into into the fold. And they were so warm and so welcoming and inviting, you know, whether it was for Shabbat meals or um, I remember one lady in particular um, Rahi Klein, she used to take me out and, and show me, you know, Melbourne and shopping and boutiques and, and places to go. And, um, yeah. And was it about, did it uh, help take away the longing for what you had had? Did it, was, did you feel you were um, creating new relationships? Absolutely. Um, you know, for a long time, when I first came to Melbourne, um, we used to celebrate Thanksgiving, which is on the last oh, wow. Thursday in November. And usually it was all us American girls who happened to marry Australian men. Oh, wow. And we would rotate it every year at someone else's home just to, I guess, you know, have that familiarity. My parents never celebrated Thanksgiving, and I don't know if any of the girls here's parents ever celebrated Thanksgiving, but it was another reason to get together and eat and taste Gorgeous. good food and, <laughs> and, and, you know, have some friendships. We haven't done that in a very long time. But some of the very good friends here that I did make happened to be American girls. And I think it's just because you have a frame of reference. And, every, and your friendships that you have still from New York, what do you think it is that, uh, that still makes you feel like each other's family even more so than friends look i have to say that it's really important when it first when i first came to melbourne that if you didn't write you're not going to get an answer so i think you have to make that effort absolutely but we'd been together some of us since primary school some of us since high school we were always there supporting each other you know boyfriend losses or career changes or anything like that things going on in the home and I think because we were such a strong sisterhood, um, it just continued. And how did that sisterhood also impact on your rehabilitation? They they sent me letters. They called me when I was in rehab. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. They were with me every step of the way uh, to such an extent that one of my girlfriends um, has an apartment in Jerusalem. And when she was there last time, she had both my children over for meals. And it was like another generation, you know, getting to know my girlfriends. And very, very special. You know, there are some people and you obviously um, wouldn't know a lot of these people that don't know how to um, become part of any kind of other group people that have grown up that have been alone and um, what's your advice do you with all of these what's your advice and also with all of these friendships do you notice when people um, are on their own right so um 
For me, the way I dealt with it initially when we first moved here, a lot of people were inviting us. And the truth is, it's not everybody you want to invite back, you know. And and so if you really want people in your life, you've got to invite them. Either you invite them out for coffee or you invite them out for a Shabbat meal or you invite them out to the pictures. You know, you've got to start the conversation. You have to be the one to initiate. For some people, that's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, But the truth is that if you don't want to be alone in life, Somebody has to make the first step. Right. You need to you need to make the effort and yes. you need to go forward. Absolutely. And so um, you've got one of your children in Israel at the moment. Dahlia which, and Aaron with baby Liel. Which must be just wonderful. Yes. Um, are you in touch daily? Or daily. Weekly? Daily. We definitely speak daily. We video chat, you know, a couple of times a week. So I can see Liel grow. <laughs> and she's a beautiful little girl. Um, but yeah, daily. Wouldn't be a day with that I didn't speak here? with her. My son, Ellie, is 21. He's currently working at Gold's Bookstore. And he's the tall, good-looking one. If you need a book, <laughs> he can help you out or Gorgeous. a present. And he's, he's looking for a partner. Well, he's only 21. So I don't think he's actively looking for a partner. He's doing twenty-one in, in within the Adas community. <laughs> no, but we're not part of the Adas community. People, when our children were really young, my kids would come home from school and say, "But mom, what are we?" Because everybody wants to put you in a box and tie you up and put you on a shelf. And that's what I used to tell them. I said, "We're not any." thing or belong to any community where Torah observant Jews and that's who we are and if somebody asks you what you are that's what you tell them. And that's such a wonderful way to look at it as well because it doesn't limit you. Absolutely. It makes your it makes your choices limitless and it's more welcoming to well, everybody. You know, they just had the Siyam Hashas the other day and it was all about one man, one heart, people from every Every different community in Melbourne. So you'll have together. to. What's Siyum Hashas? Just okay. very quickly. <laughs> it's very a quickly. seven and a half year cycle of learning of the learning the Talmud. So wow, yeah, it's a page a day, and seven uh, and a half, seven years. and a half years. Amazing. Yeah. Just as you have been, Mina. Our time is <laughs> up, but um, it's been just such a wonderful joy to speak to you because of your attitude because of the way that you uh, you see the world and and continue to see the world and you're not a woman who's a double amputee you're a vibrant wonderful emotional woman who is um, who's very much part of the world community and have so much more to offer um i'm just taken back by how much you're doing and how much you I know you'll continue to do. Thanks for having me. Thank you very